If you have a Bible, uh, please turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be at this morning. I'm going to start in verse, I'm going to read through in verse 47 to gain a little context. Last week, uh, Melissa did an incredible job teaching. Gosh, I love it when she teaches. She's so gifted and anointed and I, I look forward for you guys to learn all of her, kind of her, the way she teaches and the way she puts together a sermon. It's just, I think she's just brilliant. So I'm really proud of her. So um, she taught this last week, but I'm going to do a little bit, I'll read a little bit just for background and then move into our text today. So let's start at verse uh, 37 and then I'll read along and then, um, and then we'll pray. Verse 37, when the people heard this Peter's sermon from last week. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Spirit. And of course the promise is for you and your children because you're all Israelites. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number of that day. Now, our text, verse 42. These 3,000 new converts devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, and they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need in their community. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you for this beautiful and lofty bit of scripture. And I, I honestly, even uh, not just teaching it, but living into this is really lofty and hard to attain. And so... We say this morning with the Apostle Paul, uh, not that we have already attained, but we press forward, forgetting what's behind, pressing onward and upward to the call of Christ Jesus. And Lord, that's my prayer this morning. That's been my posture. Uh, how desperately I want to be a part of a community like this and be uh, a contributor to a community like this. And, um, but help me, help us, Lord. Um, and I, I pray that you would give us uh, grace and wisdom to navigate your big, giant, messy church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Uh, when my daughter, Juniper, was born, I got this amazing thing called paternity leave. And it's, um, it's six weeks of something like new dad vacation or something, right? It's incredible. You get to six weeks to bond with your baby. And I, it was our first one. And so obviously I... I loved it. Um, and because what babies do kind of best and most when they're brand new is that they sleep a lot, I had to channel six weeks of energy that I would typically channel into research for study for sermons uh, into something else. I usually spend about 20 weeks researching and writing for sermons. And I wasn't necessarily doing that when I was on paternity leave. So obviously I had all this energy that I needed to do that with. And so what I decided to do was um, research a, a new, safer, larger car for our family. So I spent hours of time researching 
cars, Ashley was getting so angry at my new obsession about cars. And I had all the apps and I had all the comparisons and I had like a spreadsheet of all, not spreadsheet because I don't really use those, but I had like my own sort of spreadsheet on like what car. And it got to fever pitch when I drove the whole new family, Juniper and her baby, like baby little baby car seat, first like outward excursion out into the world to conquer to drive this car. And it was a disaster. And um, Ashley said, that's it. You're going to buy the car on the internet and they're going to deliver it to you. And that's exactly what happened. And so we got the car and I remembered when we got the car how much I love new cars. I like love new cars. I forget that I love new cars until I'm in a new car. And then I remember that one of my favorite things in the world is the smell of a new car. Like the, the, the smooth, shiny paint, the smell of the interior. And so I know that you're going to say, well, a new car smell is just the off-gassing of chemicals. I don't care. I love it. Like, I love it. And so usually what I try to do is if I get a new car, I try to make the new car smell last as long as I can. Not artificially with, like, the trees or anything, but, like, for real. And I try to do it. And one time I got a car to keep smelling like that for, like, a year. And it was pretty amazing. Um, but I was a lot of diligence. So I was trying with this new car to get that new car smell going as long as I could. But with a, a baby and a puppy, it lasted maybe a week, maybe like a month at most. And then one Sunday, right after we got it, I got a call from Ash right as I was walking up on stage to teach. Um, she's like, oh, Dave. And she never calls me right before I get up on stage. So I answer the phone and go, hello, you okay? She goes, I just got an accident. I'm like, are you okay? Is the baby okay? What's going on? She goes, well, I was driving the street and I got narrow and I was going and then this parked car side view mirror scratched the car. I'm like, first of all, that's not an accident. That's like <laughs> not what you call me for right before I get up on stage and say I had an accident. That does not define, we have to define accident here. That's not it. And second of all, I bought the car with all of the sensors that like bing and ding and all this other stuff. Did you hear the sensors? She said, yes, they were really loud. I'm like, <laughs> what? I don't. And then I hung up and came out here and taught a really angry sermon, I think. <laughs> Here's the thing about the new things. Things don't stay new. If they're used like they're supposed to be used, things don't stay new. Relationships don't stay new. Objects don't stay new. Things don't stay new. But it's, it's newness. Oftentimes, the, the, the thing when it's new shows us what it's supposed to be like. In our text today, we're looking at the first church. Like the church when it was brand new. When the church had the new car smell and the exterior didn't have the dings and the scratches of time. And many commentators say that Luke here, the author of Acts, is exaggerating on how good this young new church was. That Luke is idealizing it with color and gloss to make it sound way better than it was. Regardless if that's true or not, the church wouldn't stay this way that long. Because things that are new typically don't stay new. We have the progression of the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And how that, the, 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 this church here, the, this church in Jerusalem, didn't adapt well to the gospel going to the Gentiles. We have the churches that were planted from this first church. And the letters written to them on how messed up they were. Like 1 Corinthians. And of course we have the book of Revelation where it opens to the uh, letters written to the seven major churches around Asia Minor. And at that time, um, Jesus had something harsh to say about every single church except for one church. So be before we go any further, let me just get this out of the way. The church is messy and broken and flawed. And there is no single church who has it right. 
Not the Protestant church, not the Orthodox church, not the Catholic church, not the Pentecostal church, and not any combination thereof. If you're listening right now on like podcasts, obviously not right now, but like later right now, listening on podcasts from like Idaho or whatever, wishing you were part of this church, Reality SF, let me say this church is very far from perfect, right? Church, very, very far from perfect. And I know it's super on trend right now to deconstruct the church. There are big podcasts and small podcasts who carve out their niche by deconstructing the church. There are many people, thousands of them every year, who leave the church due to this kind of deconstruction. And what I'll say about that is that it's easy to do. Demo day is the easiest part of any project. All you have to do is take a hammer and start tearing things down. And if that's all you do, if all you do is deconstruct, first of all, it's easy to do. Anyone can do it. And I would say it's cowardly. It's cowardly and it's irresponsible. And you don't look super progressive and woke when you tear down the church. In my opinion, I think you look stupid. Now, I say that with as much respect as I can. I think you look stupid because, here's why, Everyone knows it's easier to tear something down and deconstruct rather than staying put and constructing. Everyone knows that. But I know that we live in a very confusing time in history. We live in a time where people like Joshua Harris, who was a leading writer, very orthodox, reformed pastor who wrote things like I Kiss Dating and Buying was a pastor for many years, leaves the church and Christianity. And then you have someone like Kanye West who starts a church and becomes a Christian. Like that's confusing. That's really confusing. Now, there are some people who point to this passage in Acts chapter 2 that we just read and say, this is the way the church needs to be. Acts chapter 2, this is the way the church needs to be. And because my church is not like this church, or because the church is not like this church, it sucks or it needs to be tore down. And what I'll do is I'll write a book about it or I'll write a blog about it or I'll start a podcast about it. Now, you can do that and there's many people who do that. But here's the glaring misstep in all of those people who do that, who point to Acts 2 and say the church needs to get back to this. Here's the glaring misstep. You're forgetting that not even this church stayed this way. It took all of two whole chapters for this thing to start going sideways. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at this passage and recommit ourselves corporately to the beauty of this and the way this church functions at this time. And to do that with a lot of humility. And I think the reason why we have to do that is because we don't have any evidence in this text of a person or a group of leaders who ordered the church this way. We don't have any evidence that a group of leaders ordered the church in the Acts 2 sort of model. There wasn't someone who sat down with those early followers of Jesus and said to them, this is how we do church. There wasn't a welcome to the church in Jerusalem class or anything like that. Everyone was together and has all things in common. Therefore, sell your possessions and property and give to anyone who has needs. That's how we do it in this church. The text doesn't say that that's what happened. Like that people taught them how to do this. It seems from the flow of the text that the one who is responsible for the structure was the spirit. Does that make sense? There's a difference there. The difference between someone standing up and saying, this is how we do church, and people joining the church, and then the Spirit doing this among them. See, when the Holy Spirit added to their number those who were being saved, 
there was this supernatural, spontaneous eruption of common learning, sharing, generosity, prayer, and of course, and always, food. There was always food involved with the Christian faith. The text makes it sound like the response of their sins being forgiven in verse 38 and the gift of the Spirit was this new kind of shared common life together. This is what the Spirit was up to. So let's look at this text and see what this church was like. And of course, as I share these things, as I prayed, our posture is Paul's words in Philippians 3, that not that we have already attained, but we forget the past and we press on forward. This is our desire, though none of us are here. The first thing we see, look at verse 42. The first thing we see was a common devotion. The first thing that this church shared was a devotion. They devoted themselves to. This could be the entire sermon right here. These, These four words. They devoted themselves to. There was a shared devotion among that first church of 3,000 people. If I was to ask you, not right now, but like tomorrow morning, if I was to text you tomorrow morning, tomorrow or tomorrow afternoon or whatever, um, what are you devoted to? Now, I I don't want to say this now in the context of church because, you know, you're at church. You're like, well, this is what I'm devoted to. But Monday morning, if I was to ask you, what are you devoted to? What comes to mind to you? What are like three things you are devoted to? Now, don't answer out loud, but just think about that. If tomorrow you were asked, what are you devoted to? How would you answer that honestly? I think if you're a modern person, you might say something like, I'm devoted to my job. I'm devoted to my relationships like family or spouse or friend circle or something. I'm devoted to them. And I think for a lot of us, maybe most of us, if we're really, really honest, we'd say we're devoted to personal care. Like we're devoted to self-care. We're devoted to working out, mental health, therapy, intelligence, our own fashion, like basically how you look or how you feel. So I think if we're honest, we would say we're devoted to our career or our job, our relationships, and ourselves, or self-care. And that's a lot of us in here. Now, how do we know we're devoted to something? How do I know if I'm devoted, if if that's really the truth, if that's devoted, if I'm devoted to those things? The thing that we're devoted to get our trinity of possessions pointed to it. The trinity of our possessions are our time, our talent, and our treasure. The things that we're devoted to get those three things, like, aimed at it. The things that we're devoted to get these things from us. They get our time from us. This is our thought time, our emotional time, our actual time. They get our talent, our gifts, our strength, our energy, and they get our money. Just look how your trinity of possessions gets spent and you'll see and you'll find out what you're devoted to. Now, at this point, I'm not making a moral judgment at all about it. I want you just to acknowledge it. There are things that every single one of us is devoted to. It might be those three things I mentioned or maybe other things in there, but I want you to hold in your mind what you're devoted to. These 3,000 people had their devotions too. Don't take that from them. Don't scrub the text of that. There are people in this text that had their own devotions. Their devotion might have been to their family to their religion, to their country, whatever. We all have them. See, what happens here in Acts is that when people come into the church, the spirit of the living God reorders their devotion. 
The Spirit draws everyone's devotion to this new thing, this new gathering, this new family, this new occupation. It pulls their time, their talent, and their treasure into this new holy vortex. Think about that. All of their time and their talent and energy and their treasure was pulled into this new thing called the ecclesia or the church. And what Luke does next is clearly list the things this church by the Spirit was devoted to. They were a devoted church, but what were they devoted to? Well, it says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, first of all, the word devoted means to persevere in something. They kept on doing it. They kept on recommitting themselves to it. They persevered in this thing. So, they persevered in the apostles' teaching. That is, they persevered in the practice of learning from the apostles. These people, these 3,000 that were added to the number of the church, were eager students humbly learning from the apostles. They were devoted to learning. See, the apostles, now if you don't know who the apostles were or what they were, the apostles were the ones who walked with Jesus who were physically with Jesus, who physically learned from him and physically like witnessed his miracles, his teachings, and his resurrection. If you remember from Acts chapter 1, when they were trying to replace Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus, this is their like parameters of who they were going to choose from to replace Judas to be one of the apostles. It says in Acts chapter 1 verse 21, therefore it's necessary to choose one, one of the men who have been with us the whole time with the Lord Jesus who was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the, the, the apostles were the people that were with Jesus. They were with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, that's John's baptism, all the way up until his ascension and witnessed his resurrection. So like they kind of caught all of his life. Now, there were, there were more people than just the 12 apostles who did that. There were hundreds of people. But the 12 were appointed to, by the Spirit of God, to lead this church. And these apostles, what they did, since they were, since they were with Jesus, they taught these new 3,000 converts the facts and the sayings of Jesus. They taught these new 3,000 people, the way and the teachings of Jesus. They taught these 3,000 people the miracles and the works of Jesus. They did this both by oral tradition, but also by demonstration. Because in verse 43, it says that everyone, everyone was in awe by the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So they taught... They would teach them, oh, let me teach you the Sermon on the Mount. Let me teach you what Jesus says about, about tithing. Let me teach you this time that Jesus had this miracle and what this miracle meant. Let me, let me teach you about this time we didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And he explained these parables to us. Oh, let me tell you about all the parables that Jesus used. Let me tell you about this time they taught about the, the, this, this time that this one person came up to us and asked us about what is eternal life. And do you like climb back into your mother's womb? And Jesus is like, no, that's gross. Don't do that. And he said, this is, this is how you have eternal life. And they would do that over and over again to these 3,000 people. They would teach them the way of Jesus, but not just teach them, they would show them. They would demonstrate the kingdom of God. They would demonstrate it in wonders and signs. And the church was devoted to learning. They gave themselves to learning the way of Jesus and the works of Jesus. A church that does not keep learning the teachings in the way of Jesus 
and keep it central to the church will leave a vacuum to be filled with a big personality or a big campaign or some other reason they all gather together, which may be noble, but secondary to the call to become the kind of church the Spirit births in the wake of people becoming born again. The kind of church that, that the Spirit wants to birth is one that practices learning Jesus. Now, being devoted to learning from the apostles doesn't mean they were devoted simply to learning static doctrine. Remember, the word devoted means to persevere. So what this means is that the text points to a perseverance in learning, in study, in deepening their faith and understanding, on the, understanding the way of Jesus. The church should never be afraid of study. The church should never be afraid of learning. I am part of a church tradition, what I was kind of uh, born again into when I was in my teenage years, that looked down on seminary education. They looked down on learning. They said if you kept learning, then you would learn yourself right out of the faith. And I don't think that's a thing. I don't think we should be afraid of learning. Many people think you can learn yourself into unbelief. In fact, that's a huge reason why people today walk away from their faith and deconstruct the churches. They learned something. They learned something about other religions. They learned something about the human sciences. They learned something about our natural world. They learned something about history. But I would say this. It's study motivated by faith in Christ that leads us to deeper and more mature faith. Study more deeply in the, if you study more deeply in the teachings and the way of Jesus, if you do that, you'll find Jesus and his way and his teachings to be more wise and more beautiful than any other way put forth by other teachers. And you will see how all of these other wonderful things from TED Talks to super political books written right now about our current age to find their kind of fulfillment and longing in Christ. The second thing they were devoted to was fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. Now, this word in the original language is koinonia. I'm sure you knew that word. It's the only Greek word most Christians know, <laughs> koinonia, right? Now, koinonia is simply the word for, is not, sorry, it's not simply the word for friends or community or like a church potluck or whatever. The word meant, the word meant corporation or common enterprise or even a company. This word is very similar to saying that two people own a company together and that they are partners or that they have a corporation. It means that two or more people don't simply share in something, but they participate in something together. See, if you are a partner in a company, you are participating in something together. Therefore, you share something. For example, it's like being married. Being married doesn't mean you share a house or an apartment together. That's not what marriage means. Being married means you are partners in life together. Therefore, you share an apartment and a bed and a bank account. Everything short of a toothbrush. Don't <laughs> share your toothbrush with your spouse. This is marriage counseling 101. Just stop that and so many other things are going to be, will work themselves out. So... It's, it's, it's the participation that leads to the sharing, right? So koinonia is a word about partnership. It's a word about we're participating in something together. Because we're participating in something together, therefore we share things together like marriage. The first church was devoted, devoted to koinonia. 
to the participation of life together in the gospel of Jesus. And that participation led to sharing. And not just sharing, but sharing everything. In verse 44, you get a very intimidating and scary verse, one that should, should like stick to your ribs and disrupt you a bit. Verse 44 says, all the believers were together and had everything in common and they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That's a hard scripture to read because we're so far from it. I've been, ever since studying for the book of Acts the last several months, been plagued with the idea of personal property and what it means. And is my personal property at the disposal of the spirit? And to what degree is it? And to what degree is it not at the disposal of the spirit? Imagine what it must have been like for a, to be in a group of 3,000 people who have just experienced the life-saving power of Messiah Jesus and to realize that, that life is a gift and that nothing that we have do we own and that it's all God's. And others who have need in this new koinonia were now our responsibility. And no one taught this to them. I mean, maybe there was some teaching from the apostles about how Jesus and life with Jesus meant they shared a common purse. But it wasn't like people got saved and they passed the plate. This was spontaneous. It was something the Spirit was doing. And the word used to talk about how they sold property and possessions is in the imperfect tense, meaning it was something that kept happening. Meaning as people had need, they would sell their stuff to make sure that their needs were met. It doesn't mean, here's what it doesn't mean. This is what people think it means. It's not this. It doesn't mean that they sold, as soon as you became a Christian, you sold everything you had and you gave it to the apostles. That's not what it means. It means as soon as someone had need, people would go to their possessions and their property and sell it off to make sure that the person who has need didn't have need anymore. That's what it meant. They kept doing that over, someone had need, okay, who has something they can sell off here to meet this brother or sister or family in need? Oh, I do. I actually have this thing that the spirit is leading me to sell off and I'm going to make sure this person has enough because I have too much over here. I want to make sure you have enough. It was, it was that sort of thing. That's what the, 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 the Greek verbiage kind of leads us to. Because if Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of it all. All of our stuff, all of our property, all of our possessions. And in the moment when we think something, when the moment that when they think something is theirs, the Lord Jesus will lead them and even demand them, we'll see in a, in a few chapters, them to sell it and to give it away or to offer more of it to the new koinonia of love to participate in what God was up to in that moment. I mean, how intense and challenging and beautiful this must have been to be a part of this community. Next, they devoted themselves to breaking bread. Now, this could mean that they were committed to communion because breaking bread and wine are, 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 are participating in Christ's body as he taught us. Um, or this could mean that they were committed to eating at each other's homes all the time. Now, either way, and then commentators are kind of split on this. Does it mean communion? Because they don't really talk about wine because that would mean drinking blood and they weren't blood drinkers and they didn't want to lead to that. So they took away wine and they just said break bread and that was like shorthand for communion. Some people say that. Or other people go, no, it's not communion. It was just they went house to house breaking bread, eating together. Either way, they kept Christ in the center of their meals. Either by celebrating the body and the blood and the elements or through a meal where the only reason 
why that group of different people were in fact sharing a meal, which was a very, very intimate thing, was because of what Jesus had done in bringing them together. Either way, they gathered because Christ was in the center. And they were devoted to this. The church has always been devoted to food with Christ in the center. Jesus literally said, you know how you remember me? Through a meal. That's beautiful. A meal when you share and participate in eating from me as I represent, I'm being represented in this meal of bread and wine. The church always does this. So one of the, the, the fast track ways of becoming more and more like Christ is throw dinner parties. And they don't have to be insanely elaborate, beautiful dinner parties. They could be open up a can of chicken soup, break some bread, and open up a really cheap bottle of Martinelli's or wine, whatever you do, and make Christ the center of this meal and share a meal. Fourthly, they were devoted to eating together. But fourthly, they were devoted to prayer. In the book of Acts, prayer is central. The disciples prayed at the beginning of Acts before the coming of the Spirit. We find them just a few verses later praying for who should succeed Judas. We find them gathered together praying on the day of Pentecost. We find them here in Acts Acts chapter 2 devoted to prayer. We find them going to the temple to pray, by the river to pray, in prison they pray. When they pray, they are filled with the Spirit. When they pray, the place where they pray is shaken. When they pray at the point, they pray at the point of their life being taken for the sake of Jesus. They pray in the prison and the prison bars break open. They pray and they receive visions. They pray and they receive power. Prayer was the priority for the church in Acts. And here in our text, we we find prayer as one of the rebar pillars of its foundations. They believed, and the church still does today, that prayer changes things. That intercession changes things. And when they prayed, they prayed corporately in private, meaning they prayed house to house. We find Peter in prison. We find them and I gather in a house to pray. They got in homes. They got in buildings to pray. When they prayed, they prayed in unity. They agreed for miracles and moves of God to break in and by his spirit arrive and do kingdom stuff. When they prayed, they remained open to God who defied convention. This church didn't just pray when it was convenient and other things in their life was satisfied, therefore they can pray. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to this. That was the first church. The new car smell and all. That's what it was. They were devoted to those four things. Remember, things don't stay new, but it's the newness of something that shows you the way it was supposed to be. The church, birthed by the Spirit, is supposed to be a learning community. It's supposed to be a a community that that prays. It needs to be a community that is in koinonia fellowship. It needs to be a community that is breaking bread. This is like the, 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 the church the Spirit births. Now, I want to point out something. We have in our church that we talked about last January in 2019, We have what we call a theory of change, how we believe we change to become more like Jesus. And we kind of run through this rubric, through this theory of change, we kind of run everything through it when we do community, when we do events, when we do gatherings, when we're doing our our children's um, ministry, we kind of run everything through this grid. We believe you can, anyone can become more like Jesus and become more fully human. 
you can progress in the gospel. So if you go to AA and ask how to get sober, they will give you a 12-step plan. If you go to a nutritionist and ask how to get healthy, they will give you a plan. If you go to a church and ask how do you change to become like Jesus, Dallas Willard says it's a rare church that has a clear plan. So our plan, we talked about last year, looks something like this. We believe that, that people who are uh, born again or, or are Christian, have given their lives, submitted their lives to the Lordship of Jesus, change through truth, practice, community, and the Spirit. You change by learning the way of Jesus. You change through practicing the way of Jesus, getting it habituated, getting it into your bones, getting it into your habits. Um, we, we, we learn, we change through community by doing that together with other people. So they see our failures, they see our confession, they see our strengths, they, they make up for every lack, they point out things we can't see. And we do this by the power of the Spirit who is always conspiring with everything going on in our life to make us more like Jesus and to show us the love of Christ. Always. If we're just, if we pay attention, the Spirit's always doing that. Now I want you to notice that our theory of change lines up pretty well with what the first church devoted themselves to. The, the devotion triangle of Acts chapter 2 looks something like this. They were a community of learning. They devoted themselves to learning, to the practice of prayer and communion, the fellowship, and the spirit. That's, it's, it's almost literally one for one the exact same thing. They gave themselves to the learning of truth in the way of Jesus. They gave themselves to these two important practices, the practice of prayer and the practice of breaking bread communion. Like getting communion in the life of their church this is a huge important practice. They gave themselves to fellowship or community or koinonia. They did life together and they gave themselves to the spirit and they were open to the spirit. So I think this is how we change. I believe not only is Acts chapter 2 Luke is writing about what the church did, but I think it's a model for how we can change, how we become like Jesus, how we as a church can become like Jesus. So that was them. I, I try to do as much as I can. I, as much as I could, I tried to talk about this church, but now I want to talk about us. I want to talk about four things I would like you, if you are a member, part, congregant, however you identify yourself at Reality SF, if you belong here, I would like you to consider you committing to four things. I want to list, list these four things out. And then I also want to end by four things you can expect at this church. So here are commitments and expectations um, as, a, you know, as we look at Acts chapter 2. First, I want you to say um, in your spirit and with your community, I am committing to learn. I, I'm not saying, don't, don't do that right now. Don't say that loud right now. But I want you to consider this. I commit to learn, meaning that you keep learning. You keep learning the way of Jesus. If you went to Bible college, you went to a Christian college and had to go to chapel every day, if you grew up and, and your dad was a, your mom or dad was a pastor, so you know all the stuff and you just stop, you're like, I have enough information. I went to seminary to get my, my thing and Bible thing and whatever that was. I didn't go, so I don't know what it's called, but <laughs> that I got that. I don't have to learn. I'm just going to go apply everything I know. I don't have to keep learning. No, devoted to learning. That you keep learning the way of Jesus. That you're 
that your face is in the scriptures. You're reading the words of Christ. You're taking in and metabolizing the words of Christ. And everything else you learn from diets to politics, you match up with what you learn from Christ. That's what I want our church to commit to, especially as we go into this election season, especially as we go into our polarized world called social media, we need the grid of I learn Christ. So you're committing to learning by questioning your assumptions, questioning your worldview, and going to the scriptures. You will commit to learn by talking about and how about how you're living out the way of Jesus, and you'll do all of this humbly. So I'm asking you to commit to learn. Committing yourselves to learn. Now, if you don't know where to start, um, we have these great things called our discipleship courses. We're a good place to start. And they give you, promise they give you homework for you uh, type A overachieving San Franciscans. <laughs> like, you know what I miss about school? Homework. And you're very weird, but some of you are like that. Go to these courses. They'll give you some homework. And they're, it's really good homework. And it's about practicing the way of Jesus. So, um, Commit yourself to reading uh, the Gospels, committing yourself to read through the New Testament, and then start from the New Testament, make your way to the Old Testament, read the Bible. Like, I don't even know where to start. Just start reading the Bible. Start with the Gospels and move outward from there. Second thing that I'm asking you to commit to as a part of this church is I commit to showing up. I commit to show up. I will show up, meaning I will show up for my brothers and my sisters in Christ. I will show up to church to worship and learn and serve and receive communion alongside them. I'll show up when they have need. And what I mean by they is anyone from our church who comes into your orbit who has need is partly your responsibility. Do something with that. Don't just go, you should talk to the staff. Here you go. <laughs> Not that. You know, um, I get, I mean, obviously I get a lot of people that come to me with, with need, because, you know, I'm, I'm the pastor and I, people come to me because you're, you're the one talking. You're the one I recognize you that have the beanie on. You, you, there's a guy, right? I'm up front. I want to talk to you about this need I have. And then I, you know, I don't think it's my job to take all of those needs because there's uh, hundreds and hundreds of people at this church. But I'll be honest with you, I find it hard just not to go to Nkechi because Nkechi is one of the people that you go up to her and she feels like it's her, she takes on her responsibility to do something with. And she's on staff as well. And so, and she has a network of people. So I typically just go, I'm just going to go to Nkechi. You know what I wish can happen? I can just grab whoever's walking past me. I just grab them like that. That would be my wish. I'm just going, hey, you, hi, I'm, I'm Dave. What's your name? Great. This person has need. This, meet this person. Go. I, I wish we were that kind of church. We're like, really? Thank you. I'm so glad I walked past you right then. I will 100% take this on. This is great. How can I help you? How can I be of service? What do you need? How can I get involved in this community? That's what I hope. We, we get to in our church. Amen. That's what I, I desire. I desire that our church isn't addicted to a person. Like dependent on if this person doesn't do it, then it's not done. Or if this person doesn't say it, it's not done. Um, the most powerful ministry happens um, in, the, in, in the, the pews of the church and the, the, the circles of community group, however you want to say it. It happens out there. That, that is, I think, gives plausibility to our church. So I'm asking you to commit to showing up, committing to showing up to your community, to show 
up and go, I, am, I will participate in the needs and the desires of people in this church. I will participate in what they, what they need and how I can pray for them and how I physically can get involved in their lives. But this, I mean, even if I say that, some of you guys are going, I'm probably going to skip that one. I'm the learning person. I'm going to do that. All of these things is what I'm asking you to consider. The third thing is that you will commit to pray. I'll commit to pray for this church every day is what I'm asking you to do. This could be a couple seconds. It could be a couple hours. Totally up to you. Commit to praying for its leaders, the least and the most weak and suffering among, among us. The, if you read the newsletter, a fun exercise is to read our weekly newsletter and read it prayerfully. Just to read a thing, go, I'm going to pray for that. Or read through it and go, this is the thing I'm going to pray for. Just to pray for our community. To commit to pray. When the church calls a prayer meeting, I'm asking you to do this. This is what I'm asking you to consider to do. When the church calls a prayer meeting, I'll be, I'm asking you to be devoted to at least attempt to move my schedule around and inconvenience myself to be there. Just to, just to attempt to do it. I'm asking you to try because there's no try. Just to attempt to move in that direction. To go, I'm going to try to reschedule this thing. And I'm going to try to, this might be an inconvenience, but I will be at this prayer meeting. And I'll be there present and I'll be there expectant to what God might want to do. See, our church was built on a prayer meeting. A very simple, plain group of people that no one in this group was specifically like, overly gifted Pentecostally or charismatically or there weren't like words of knowledge flying everywhere. It wasn't super like intense. It was a, if, if, if I can like record them and show one of the recordings, it was a very simple prayer meeting. And the further we get from that original vision of just being a church that prays, the further we get away from God's heart for this particular church. And I believe that. We have to be a church that's committed to prayer. And the fourth thing I'm going cons- to ask you to consider saying, uh, committing to is I want you to commit to saying yes. Meaning I want you to commit to say yes to being open to the Spirit. Saying yes to the movements and the promptings of the Spirit, of, by the Spirit of the living God. Um, whatever he places on your mind and on your heart. So those four things I'm asking you to, 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 to consider. You're going to consider these in your community groups this next week. I'm going I'm to follow up with you next week and the week after. We're going to figure out a way where you can actually like opt into these things saying, yes, I'm a part of that. I don't really know how that's going to happen. Maybe someone can figure it out in this, in this group of people that is way smarter than I am. Just like we'll figure that out. Like we're, This is how many people in our church are like committed to these things. Committing to learn, committing to show up, committing to pray, and committing to say yes to the Spirit's leading. Now here's... And I'm, and I'm done after this. Here's what you can expect. If you're part of our church, if you're new to our church, here's what you can expe- expect from this very broken and incomplete church. These aren't going to blow your mind. One, you can expect that, they, that I will have to fight off the temptation of knowing better. Because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. As you learn and keep learning, there will be this temptation of you going to CG and saying, that person is so dumb. That person does not know. He did not read or she did not read um, the whole book of John like I did this morning. And they have no idea <laughs> at all. The thing is this about learning. If you are learning Christ rightly, you're going to learn the way of love. You're going to learn the way of enemy love. You're going to learn the way of humble love, of meek love, of, of speaking truth in love. If not, you're going to get prideful and mean. So expect 
that as you learn, you're going you're gonna to start getting puffed up with knowledge. Like, oh my gosh, I know way more than I did a year ago. I am awesome. <laughs> you're going to have to fight that temptation and be humble. Because if you're learning right, it's going to make you more humble. Number two, expect that there will be times I will not want to show up and that I can make up a story in my mind that will justify how I feel. Just expect when CG night happens or prayer meeting night happens, there will be, you can just expect that you're like, I don't want to show up tonight. And you will have a very clear, and you could text your friend and go, hey, can you help me out here? Am I wrong here? I just how I'm feeling. And your friend will probably go, yeah, totally. That's right. You should probably not. Just expect that to happen. I'm not saying I'm, there's not a judgment call on it. Just expect that to happen. And when it does, just check it. Like I can, I can make up a story in my mind to justify about anything. What did I, so don't be surprised when that happens and try this. Try to be people who your yes means yes and your no means no. Try that on for a bit. It's hard to do. It's hard to be a person of your word. Try it. You're going to fail at it. I fail at it all the time. I'm moving towards, I want us to move towards, my yes means yes and my no means no. And my no might hurt you. You might go, okay, Dave, can you? I'm like, no. Well, no, no, because I can't do it. I'll say yes and then not do it. I'd much rather say no now and you look at me in the face and go, I hate you. I'm like, I'm just being honest. I can't do that. <laughs> Number three, expect that praying and blessing will be harder than gossip and tribalism. Expect that when praying for someone and blessing is way harder to do than gossiping about your leader or gossiping about your pastor or gossiping about your prayer partner or gossiping and tribalism because what gossip leads to is tribalism where you get with a group of people that agree with you and you draw a circle around you and you're like, it's now us versus them. That's tribalism. And what you do is you stop thinking. You're just all about like, let's protect our narrative. Let's protect what we believe is true and they're wrong and we're right. And that is classic tribalism. That's basically what's wrong in our world right now. I'm just saying. Expect that it's way easy to do tribalism and it's really easy to do gossip. And harder thing to do is prayer and blessing. Just blessing someone. I bless you. I, I, I find that hard. I was with, I was somewhere recently where this person who I would define as um, someone who is in the technology sector in our church who has a lot of money and is kind of jerky. You can, there's other names for them, but I'll just say that, okay? And it was really hard to be around this person. I wasn't with this person. I was just in a coffee place with this person. This person was talking about this and that and money and this. I'm flying here, flying there, blah, blah, blah. And I found myself just judging this person so hard. I mean, like, judgment. And I'm writing a sermon, by the way, and I'm judging this person. And I'm trying to find a way to write this person in the sermon in a bad way. I'm like, how do I get this person? I want to talk. And I found myself doing that whole gossipy tribalism, me versus him. He's what's wrong with the world and I'm in San Francisco and I'm what's right with the world in San Francisco. And it's just wrong. And I repented and I started blessing him. I started praying for him and blessing him. I'm not saying that I'm good, I'm right. I'm just saying I was so bad that I had to resort to like Jesus' way because I was going in my own way. What blessing looks like is I bless his energy because that's youthful energy that wants to throw yourself out into the world and do something and you think you have the right answer and he's going to mellow over age. I pray 
he mellows. I bless his energy and I bless his, his opportunism and all that. And I pray he mellows with age. I pray this person becomes the kind of person where when he shows up in, in the world, he blesses and he does not curse. And this is what I'm trying to do as I'm, and I was telling Ashley later on, like I had to bless that energy because it's basically the same thing I do with my daughter. When she has this young, restless energy, I don't gossip about her or hate her for it. I bless it. I bless her energy. It's way harder to be people who bless and pray than to gossip and resort to tribalism. But, but you can expect that in this church. You can expect that you're going to want to gossip and move to tribalism. But I'm going to expect you to do the harder thing and pray and bless. Fourthly, you can expect that it will be harder to say yes to the spirit than to say yes to self. It's going to be a lot harder to say yes to the spirit than to say yes to your own self, your own comfort, all of that stuff. If we're going to live into this world and start to, to like move in and press into becoming the kind of church that, that, that we see here in scripture, we have to start saying yes to the spirit. So that's where I'll end. As I end, we were doing pre-gathering prayer. And pre-gathering prayer um, is beautiful. And I say, come to it because if you don't, you'd be missing out on something because it's basically how I think the church should be. Just that, that's church. I just love it. And today there's all kinds of beautiful words that were coming up. But the two words that I, I think are relevant to right here were uh, permission and trepidation. So here's what that means. Um, you need to be as a church granted permission. You have the permission to be the church here. On the way here, I was trying to figure out how, I, how do I weave evangelism into the sermon? Because at the end it says, and the church and, and, the, and, and, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. This has an evangelism been. How do I evangelize at the end of this teaching? And I realized during pre-gathering prayer, I really can't do that. That's, that's all of our jobs. Evangelism will happen as maybe you get a prophetic word for someone next to you or in, in the prayer line or coming forward or in the bathroom line or something. And you speak into a moment where only God could have revealed that to you. And this person realizes that God is real. Like that kind of stuff happens all the time. You have the permission to be that kind of church and to risk and to possibly fail. They're like, that person might say, that doesn't mean anything to me. I'm sorry, that's weird. Then you're like, okay, I tried it. So I'm gonna keep trying it. And the last thing was trepidation. I think this was, was really important. I think there's this, there is a sense of fear. I was, I was sensing this a, a few weeks ago. There is a sense of fear in our church. And it's, I think it's a, a unhealthy fear of God. There is a fear of the Lord that's good, and we see that in the text. Unhealthy fear of God is um, avoiding God, staying busy. This was a specific word, staying busy to avoid God. We, even church activity could be a way that we're trying to avoid God. We're very creative in avoiding God. And there's a fear that if I give myself to God, he'll make me do some of this stuff that's in here. And that is the fear. And... There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. If I remember this one guy coming up to me when the church first started and God told him to clear out his bank account and give it to the church. And I was like, I've not, I've not witnessed this kind of faith. That's insane. And he goes, I, I think I need to live off paycheck to paycheck and live off faith right now. And so I want to give away all this like security that I have in my bank account. That kind of stuff is scary. And I, th I would say this person experienced no greater joy than do being obedient to the Spirit. So you might fear that God might call you to do something like that, but I'll tell you that fear will give way in a moment 
to exceeding joy of being obedient to the Spirit and cooperating with the Spirit of God. And what God will do as a result of that will be 50, 100 times more than you can ask or imagine. Would you stand with me as we pray? This teaching was recorded live at Reality San Francisco. And as a part of our weekly gatherings, we move from teaching to responding to the Holy Spirit through prayer and a time of ministry. It's hard to capture that on a podcast, but we encourage you to pause and consider how the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to respond to what you've just heard. For more resources and details of how to join us on Sundays, please visit realitysf.com. May the peace of Christ be with you.